0: Earlier in the program, Drs. Quinn and Stadler commented on the findings presented at the 2007 ASCO meeting by Dr. Bernard Escudier on the landmark Avorin trial evaluating interferon alone or with bevacizumab in the first-line metastatic setting. I met with Dr. Escudier in Chicago during the ASCO meeting, and he began our conversation by commenting on the background to the trial.
1: Avastin has been shown active in kidney cancer since many years now. I mean, the first study was presented at ASCO in 2001, published in 2003, and demonstrated that when you give bevacizumab 10 mg per kilo every two weeks, compared with placebo in patients who have failed high dose IL-2, you have a significant improvement in progression for survival. It was a small trial. There was crossovers, so this trial has been discussed and was not good enough for registration, but there was a strong evidence that uh, this drug was active in kidney cancer. There's another good rationale is that when you look at the pattern of all the tumors, the kidney is the tumor which is on the top of expression of VEGF. I mean, it is in the kidneys that the VEGF is much more overexpressed, which is a good rationale to give anti-VEGF therapy to these patients. Finally, last year at ASCO, there was a very interesting study from Ron Bukowski, which aim was to see if when you add erlotinib to bevacizumab, you could improve progression free survival. This study turned out to be negative, but in the bevacizumab long arm, it was untreated patients. The PFS was 8.5 months. So all this together makes a sense that's probably when bevacizumab is an active drug in kidney cancer. And that was our hypothesis when we started the trial. There was quite a lot of discussion of what should be the control arm, and as it was an ex-US study, we decided that at that time interferon was one standard of care, and we decided to give Bevacizumab plus interferon. And to avoid any bias, we decided to do a double-blind randomized control study with placebo arm, which was interesting and different from the CLGB study, which is still ongoing, where they don't have a placebo arm, which probably will make the study much more difficult to analyze. So we decided to go with interferon nine million three times a week, which is a standard dosage, which has been used by Mozart in his sunitinib study, and which is classical. To add bevacizumab, 10 milligrams per kilo every two weeks, which is, in our minds, a good dose for kidney cancer, at least, with a placebo-controlled study and our initial goal was to show an improvement in overall survival, so it was a primary endpoint, and we had data with interference showing that overall survival should be in the range of 13 months, and our statistical hypothesis was to go from 13 to 17 months. For that, we had calculated that we needed 650 patients to show this difference with a good hazard ratio. We had decided to do the final analysis on overall survival at 445 deaths, and we had decided to do an interim analysis at 250 deaths, what we did. At that time, it was pre-specified that we will do the final PFS analysis, and depending on the results, the DSMB would recommended to unblind the study if it was positive. So that's what we did, and the data I'm going to present tomorrow are this analysis, interim analysis for overall survival, final analysis for PFS. Two groups were well balanced in terms of these prognostic factors, and our observation was first that the response rate was increased by adding bevacizumab. We went from 13 to 31 percent by adding bevacizumab to the drug, with a few complete remissions, not so much two percent and one percent, and a very good rate of partial responses. Duration of responses were longer, and duration of stable disease were longer in the Bevacizumab arm. Then going to PFS, which was the final PFS analysis, we had quite a doubling of PFS, going from 5.4 months to 10.2 months, which is very significant with a p-value of 0.001 and a good hazard ratio. Interestingly, when we look at the different uh, prognostic groups, the benefit is seen in the favorable group, but is still more important in the intermediate prognostic group going from 4.5 to 10.8, so more than doubling the PFS in this intermediate group. And in this group of patients, we believe that interferon has very little, if any, activity in this group of patients based mainly on a large study we have presented, uh, my group has presented two years ago at ASCO. So we think that in this group at least, most of the effect we have seen in this study is due to bivacizumab. Finally, I will present the first interim analysis for overall survival. At the time of cutoff, which is September 2006, the median overall survival for the placebo group is 19.8 months and has not been reached yet for the Bevacizumab arm. With a good p-value, I mean, it's 0.0267, a good hazard ratio. It's still not in the range of the pre-specified level of significance for an interim analysis, but it's clinically significant, not yet statistically significant. One of the reasons why it's not yet significant might be because the effect is not as big as anticipated, but it might also be because a large majority of patients receive second-line treatment with active drugs, and now most of the patients have access to TKIs and so on. And in this study we already see in September and the number is increasing, twenty and fifteen percent of the patients who have received TKIs and this number is increasing. So that might mean that the overall survival might be in the future a little disadvantaged or biased by this second line treatment, which is good for patients but maybe a little less for the study. In terms of adverse event and duration of treatment, I mean duration of Bevacizumab was twice as long than duration of placebo, 10 versus 5 months. Duration of interferon was also longer, 8 versus 5 months, which is very interesting and which reflects the uh, improvement of PFS. When we look at uh, grade 3, 4 adverse events, there was more adverse events in uh, Bevacizumab arm. Overall, 60 versus 45% of the patients had some grade 3 and 4 adverse events. One of these adverse events is fatigue, which is a little higher in the bevacizumab arm, perhaps due to the additive effects of the drug to fatigue, but maybe also due to the fact that there is a longer exposure to interference. so we don't know yet. In terms of classical side effects of bevacizumab, we observe from 6.5 to 1.2% of hemorrhage, bleeding, gastrointestinal perforation. We had 2% of death in both arms, so same number of deaths. However, in the bevacizumab arm, among the eight patients who died, three patients had possibly related death to bevacizumab. Two of them had perforation of pre-existing tumor in the gut. We did perfor and the patient died. So there was some death due to bevacizumab. Not a lot, but as in any large study with bevacizumab, we had a few patients who died
0: from it. Perforation of tumor in the gut. Metastasis, can, 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 oh, metastasis yeah. to the gut. Yeah. Interesting. Did it look like it was a response? We don't know. It was at the
1: time where they died. I mean, that was not considered as progressive disease. So is it necrosis of the metastasis, is perforation of the metastasis? But two of the three patients, we had proof of metastasis into the gut. The third one, we didn't get autopsy and we don't know. We're not sure, but
0: it's probably due to that too. What about the other issues that have been seen with bevacizumab, for example, hypertension?
1: We had hypertension, so it was 4% grade 3-4 hypertension, like usually with this type of agent, so not more. Maybe a little less than with vivacizumab alone, so I don't know. At least it's not higher than what is observed with vivacizumab alone. It's not higher than sunitinib or sorafinib, so it's in the same range.
0: Any reversal posterior encephalopathy, nasal perforations, no. any of these newer things that have been coming out? No, we didn't see that. We didn't see that. So I guess the big question is, what does it mean in terms of non-protocol therapy as well as the design of future trials? How do you think people are going to react to this in terms of the algorithm and metastatic disease? I think there are two ways to look at the data. The first way is to say interferon plus avastin
1: is now one alternative for first-line therapy. When you look at the data compared with sunitinib, we are exactly in the same range of response of PFS. Side effects are probably, in the mind of investigators and in my mind, a little less with this regimen than with sunitinib. The question now is what is the effect of interferon in this regimen? Obviously, some people, especially in the U.S., are going to skip to bevacizumab is the drug which gives all the effect. I think it's fair to say that we don't know. When we look at previous data, uh, PFS was lower than that. Response rise was lower than that. So is interferon necessary to this effect? I would say maybe it's a little. But still, I think in Europe, we are going to consider this combination as one of the standard of care. And it's going to compete with sunitinib, no question in Europe. In the US, my prediction is that A lot of people are going to think that bevacizumab alone is enough. And bevacizumab alone is going to compete largely and widely with sunitinib. And I would not be surprised that uh, many people think it's better to start with a safe drug because when you give bevacizumab alone, I mean, it's really safe, easy to administer, and certainly less side effects than sunitinib alone. And then keep sunitinib for second line. The next question will be, we'll have to design trials to see what is true in this story. So, there are a lot of proposals, of course. To give you an example, in France, we're going to start a trial where we're going to compare sunitinib, interferon plus avastin, and we'll have an experimental arm, which will probably be temsirolimus plus avastin, which seems to be one of the interesting combinations. But the uh, U.S. already planned to start bevacizumab arm as a control for some of the study.
0: What about sunitinib or sorafinib, for that matter, plus bevacizumab? Sorafinib plus
1: bevacizumab seems to be difficult to handle. Activity seems good, but toxicity seems high, and it's almost impossible, and I think it is impossible, to
0: give full dose of both drugs. What's the dose limiting toxicity? When they get to
1: 200 milligram BID of sorafinib and 5 mg of BEV, they already see dose-limiting toxicity. What specifically? hypertension and food skin reaction. Hypertension is understandable. Why does it increase and food skin reaction? We don't know. We don't know. On the other hand, sunitinib so plus bevacizumab seems to be feasible at full dose. Uh, there was two reports at this meeting of phase one, one in, in the Memorial, um, one in Cleveland Clinic, and both investigators seem to have safety data which supports the dose of 50mg sunitinib and 10 milligram, avastin. And 10 seronimus, you can also give full dose, 25 milligram and 10. So these two combinations are probably going to be some experimental arms to test. The question being, it's worth it to continue this combination if we get more complete remission. And we don't know yet, because if not, I mean, Toxicity is certainly going to be higher, and we don't know if it's better to combine or to give them sequentially. Maybe you will get less toxicity and longer period of time on treatment, we don't know.
0: You mentioned that you think some people are gonna go Bev followed by sunitinib. What about the reverse order, sunitinib followed by Bev? It might be done,
1: I mean, my opinion is that we have good data of activity of sunitinib post Bev. We don't have good data of Bev post sunitinib starting with probably equivalent drugs, using the safer in patients with good condition who will maintain good quality of life for a long time. I think it makes sense. Although there is no proof that it's a good thing to do, but I think it's somewhat rational to do that now.
0: Where do you think Tempsoralinus is going to fit in the new algorithm?
1: That's a good and important question. I think it's going to be very different in the U.S. and in Europe. In the U.S., FDA has decided to give broad labelling to Tempsirolimus. So I think people are going to use not only in poorest patients, but they are going to use it probably in intermediate patients. They are going to use it in second or third line. We don't have data of, but they are going to use it because the drug will be available. It's a relatively safe drug. I mean, toxicity is probably a little lower than what we observe with sunitinib. It's an IV drug and it's popular in the US to give IV drugs. So I think it's probably going to be used more than we think. In Europe, the labelling will probably be very, very, very narrow. Only first-line, poorest patients. So I think when it will be approved, and it should be approved in Europe by the end of this year, the number of patients who are going to receive the drug will be still low until we have more data in second-line or in intermediate-group patients. How about sorafenib, Where is that going to fit in? So sorafinib, I mean, we had very important data on sorafinib at this meeting. The first one, we had the final analysis from the target study, second line. Overall, we don't have survival benefit when you look, mainly due to crossover. But when you censor the patients at the time of crossover, then we have a significant difference. And can
0: you review the design of the target study?
1: So the target study was a second line study in patients who had failed prior Therapy, mainly cytokine based therapy. 80% of the patients had cytokine based therapy. Some patients had received chemotherapy or hormone therapy as first line, but mainly uh, cytokine. And the patients then were, interestingly, the, all the patients had progressive disease and they should progress in a short period of time after Vienna first line, within eight months. They were randomized between sorafenib at the standard dose of 400 mg BID or placebo. And the primary objective was overall survival, and PFS was another (laughs) primary objective. And what we have shown initially, and which led to approval of the drug, was that we doubled. We were doubling PFS by giving sorafenib compared with placebo in this patient population, going from 12 to 24 weeks. This was the first breakthrough in this disease, and was the first drug to be approved, followed one month later by sunitinib. Initially, I mean, the benefit in overall survival appeared to be quite high. I mean, 39% improvement, although it was in term analysis. And then, over time, I mean, the difference decreases. And this is certainly due to crossover and also to overdrugs because many patients receive sunitinil afterward and so on. So now, I mean, the difference is not statistically significant if we keep the all patient population, but it is in the analysis when we censor the patient's who receive the drugs. So when we look at the placebo sensor patients, then we have a statistically significant benefit. So it means that probably the difference which is smaller now is mainly due to crossover and to new drugs which have been given to these patients. There was also two very important presentations on sorafenib. The first one was the data from the frontline study comparing interferon and uh, sorafenib it was not a phase three, it was a phase two, 200 patients. And the data which have been presented this morning showed that, unfortunately, and we don't understand why, I mean, there was no difference in PFS when you look at sorafenil compared with interferon. Although, I mean, we have more tumor shrinkage, although we have better quality of life, but still, there is no difference. And even though there might be a little biased, I mean, we will never reach the ten or eleven months PFS that we see with the two other drugs. Another important presentation this morning was done by Bob Amato, who showed that when you dose increase sorafinib, it seems that you can get a high response rate. Is it true? It may be. it must be reproduced. One important discussion was done by Bob Figlin after different presentation and one of these presentations was on the correlation between exposure to sunitinib and response. The more you get sunitinib, the more response you get. And one hypothesis is that maybe we underdose some patients. We give the same dose to all the patients. It's an oral dose, an oral regimen, and we know that absorption and so on. There are many many things we make the so blood concentration very different from one patient to another one, and maybe we underdose the patients. Whatever. I mean, based on all the data we have today, I would say that in first line, there's a strong rationale to use either sunitinib or Avastin plus or minus interferon. For good and intermediate patients, that's the algorithm that actually everybody presents. That's the one that Bob Figlin presented this morning. That's the one that Ron Bukowski is going to present tomorrow. Is there still a role for cytokines, high dose IL-2? I think yes. I think for a small group of patients who has a chance to respond to this therapy to get complete remission, I think we should continue to give these drugs. Are we going to base our decision on CN9 or other biomarkers? I don't know when it will be available, but in Europe, for example, we still give cytokines in patients with very good prognostic factors and lung metastasis alone have a chance to go to complete remission. Besides that, it will be probably either sunitinib or interferon plus avastin or avastin alone. There will be the poorest group, and I think the poorest group so far there are a lot of rationale to give time serialism in these patients, at least to start with, even though Bob Bozer has presented this morning that in his study there was PFS benefit with sunitinib in the poorest group of patients. So it Probably some people are going to continue to give sunitinib, but I think when now that ToriCell is available and with a 50% improvement in overall survival, it makes sense to give them first. So now in second line, if we start with cytokines, I mean, there is strong rationale to start with sorafenib. Interestingly, we have presented in this meeting, and another group has presented the same observation, that when you give sorafenib and sunitinib sequentially in second and third line, If you start with sorafenib and then continue with sunitinib, you have a longer duration of treatment, a longer PFS overall, than if you start with sunitinib and then followed by sorafenib. It's probably a selection bias, but my opinion, based on what we know, if we have started with cytokine, we should then give sorafenib. Now, if we start with sunitinib or avastin, probably there is some reason to give the other drugs in second line and then keep sorafenib in third line and then when you fail sunitinib and sorafenib it's still the time to do clinical trials i mean there is a very important ongoing trials with rad001 which is the other mTOR inhibitor from novartis an oral drug which has shown quite good activity in the phase two this trial is ongoing and it's certainly an important one to know If it's better to change of mechanism of action when you progress under TKI, it makes sense to change and attack the mTOR pathway, for example.
0: How late line do you think you can use Avastin second, third, fourth line therapy? We
1: don't know. What I know from my own experience and from some of my colleagues is that they have used and I have used in a few patients Avastin in third line. And you have some long stable disease, so there is probably activity. It's not proven by any study so far. People are certainly going to do that. We have drugs available. I mean, it certainly is easy to give Avastin even in third line. And if we have some stable disease, I mean, quality of life would be good and it would be used. I think it's better to use it earlier in the disease, but it's going to be used.
0: What about on the poor risk patients, second line therapy after temsirolimus and third line? If we are in a real poor risk group of patients. us are the
1: little wider group of patients, but if we're in a real poorest group of patients, I mean, the median survival is quite short. So, the chance you have to give second or third line is quite low. However, I mean, it has to be tested. And the phase 3 I mean, very, very few patients finally receive a second line. Maybe, first of all, because it was not available at that time. Also, they are dying quite rapidly when they progress after the drug, so
0: We'll see. What about Avastin in the adjuvant setting, is that being looked at and do you think it should be looked at? It has not been looked at, I think
1: it should be looked at. On the other hand, when you discuss with scientists who are working with this agent in animal models, they are a little skeptical about the effects this drug will have in adjuvant setting where supposedly, I mean, the blood vessels are normal. So I'm not sure that any of this trial is going to turn out to be positive even the source or the ASUR study, which are two big adjuvant studies, I'm not sure it's going to be positive. However, I think, I don't know if it will be done, but I think we should do a study with Avastin in this setting. It will be easier to do than sorafenib or sunitinib because it will be easier to double-blind the study.
0: What's your clinical experience in terms of sort of the quality of life patients have both with sunitinib and serafinib? What are the side effects that you find in a sort of dose-limiting?
1: The general sense is that, and I think it's fair, that sorafenib is better tolerated than sunitinib. Second important observation we do is that, obviously, I mean, grade 1 and grade 2 toxicity are the majority of the toxicity, but it's very different to have grade 1 or grade 2 toxicity lasting for months and months than so when you have this toxicity for chemotherapy for a few days. And at the end of treatment, I mean, you realize that fatigue is an important issue, diarrhea is an important issue, skin reactions are an important issue. And I would say that when you look at sunitinib, the most important toxicity, in my opinion, are fatigue and stomatitis, little diarrhea. When you look at sorafenib, it's and food skin reaction and diarrhea, which are the prominent toxicities. And many patients complain about these toxicities.
0: Anything that's useful to prevent the hand-foot syndrome or manage it?
1: It's certainly important to prevent. There are different strategies to prevent specific cream and so on. I think the best way to prevent is to adapt the dose and foot skin reaction and not to wait too much. I mean, if you start to have grade 2-3, you have to decrease the dose or to stop for one week or two, and then it, usually it's resolved. The worst thing to do is to continue and say to the patients, don't worry, because then it's going to be worse and it's really painful. We don't know exactly about drugs which are going to prevent these side effects. For example, we use widely in France, and I started my institution, cholesteramine to treat diarrhea for uh, sorafenib. It works quite well. Mm-hmm. So we have some small measures which help, but there is no real preventive. I think... There is here a very important scientific question. When we use this multi-targeted agent, we need to know for each side effects, which is the receptor which is involved in these side effects and to see which of the side effects is necessary for the activity of the drug. And when you look at all these multi tyrosine kinase inhibitors, they almost all target the same receptors but the safety profile differ from one to the other, so it's probably due to the affinity, which is different for one receptor to another one. After many years of using these agents, my personal opinion is that we are going in the future to combine only one inhibitor of one receptor, selective receptor, and combine one or two of these drugs instead of giving large multi-targeted agents. And I think. So time we were thinking that it was very good to have very, very wide multi-targeted agents is going to change based on the toxicity profile.